podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at CypherCast.net and follow us on Twitter at CypherCast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing Reflecting a Different Truth, and we'll discuss surreal bureaucracy. Join us on the path of suns, and we may uncover a secret or two. When we cast Reflecting a Different Truth, we talk about how to adapt ideas for the surreal setting of the Invisible Sun RPG. This time we're talking about surreal depictions of bureaucracy. This was a topic we put on our actually existing list of potential show topics based on conversations related to the Pale Sun. We'll get back to that in a little bit, but it seemed like a fine time to return to one of our long-standing segments where we take some concept from either the real world or from uh, traditional fantasy and, and other um, uh, genres uh, and talk about how to translate it into the surreal setting of, of Invisible Sun so that it, it can express the surreal surreality um, and be just familiar enough to be recognizable, uh, but different enough to have fun story purposes of surreal bureaucracy. Before we start, we got to talk a little bit about bureaucracy. Uh, it's uh, a, a lot of people know what orcs are, and a lot of people know what libraries are, and some of the topics we've ta- discussed in the past. Everyone knows or has experienced bureaucracy, but it might be worth talking about its foundations, because the first step of making anything surreal is talking about its essence, because we want to take that essence and exaggerate it uh, to make it surreal. So the term bureaucracy is most commonly associated with a late 19th century, early 20th century German sociologist named Max Weber. Uh, He's most famous for coining the term the Protestant ethic, uh, and probably his most famous book is called, I think, well, his most famous book is about how he argues that religious foundations of Protestantism are the basis for capitalist expansion in the 19th century. But that's not what we're going to talk about. Uh, But he is, uh, for this reason and for his discussion of bureaucracy, one of the two or three most influential sociologists to this day, but certainly of the 20th century. In some of his work, he he takes he asks the question, uh, how does authority work? Why does anyone listen to authority? And he says that there's three general answers to this question uh, beyond things like threats of shooting you or things like that. But there's three reasons that are kind of nonviolent reasons that people will obey authority. Uh, The first is uh, tradition. Traditional authority is doing things because we, whoever we are, have always done those things. Uh, An appeal to history, uh, to uh, the rights of our people, um, again, however that's defined, uh, are appeals to tradition and that this is a source of authority. And we see this within even something like a gaming community where there are, uh, you know, the shapes of our dice are in some, sense, in some sense traditional, even if that's a tradition dating only back to the 70s because of a historical accident about what dice they could find at an educational workshop in Wisconsin in the 70s. Hmm. Um, but any group can have traditions that exert authority. That's one of the bases he finds. The second is charismatic um, this is largely where that 
ter- that attribute charisma in D and D comes from. Um, and w- Weber is probably the largest, uh, the most prominent person associated with the description of charismatic authority. The notion that your personal attractiveness, which doesn't just mean your physical, what you look like, um, but your personality all adds up into a basis for authority. For him, charisma wasn't necessarily you know the bard in the party. Charisma was the leader of a revolutionary party. So uh, politicians that are, especially revolutionary politicians, are people that he usually talks to as having charismatic authority. That people will follow them into battle, they will follow them into revolution and the like. And that's obviously not tradition because you're overthrowing tradition. So he argues there's this, this separate form of authority. But we're mostly going to ignore all of that. That's just for contrast purposes, because the third basis for authority is what we want to focus on, which is bureaucratic authority. And this is one that Weber is more or less the originator of. People had talked about traditional authority and charismatic authority, but Weber more or less introduces the notion of bureaucratic authority. Um, This is emerging out of the, the... uh, assembly line uh, approach to business and manufacturing that emerges in the late uh, uh, 19th century. Um, but it's translated into government and into uh, what we now think of as sort of white collar work. And he says, bureaucratic authority is something new because it's not about doing what you've done before because you've done it before. It's not about following some shiny, smiling leader. It's about following a depersonalized authority based on technical competence and implemented through rules. So I'm going to break down those three key characteristics because that's what we're going to subvert in our surreal transformation. Um, so one, one quick question, I guess. Yeah. Um, so bureaucratic authority, I think the thing that stands out to me is that it's fairly mundane compared to traditional and charismatic mundane in that mundane in the sense that if you go over to city hall because you need to get like a you know a license to you know make an expansion on your house you're going to talk to somebody who has bureaucratic authority not because of the traditions that are associated Mm -hmm. with it but like it's just some person at a counter and they have that authority and, and that's a great, yes, exactly. So in a traditional authority, you'd be going to a town elder because your tradition was to respect your elders. Mm-hmm. In a charismatic authority, you're going to uh, El Jefe because El Jefe is awesome. Yeah. And every, El Jefe gets what El Jefe wants. So but, I guess it wasn't really a question. It was more, of, uh, I guess, an observation on my part. Yes. And it so feels, it feels less exciting than the other two. <laughs> right. But instead, yeah. So with bureaucracy, you're, you're going to this nameless bureaucrat. In fact, you almost don't have to say nameless bureaucrat because if someone for Weber, if someone's truly representing what he calls the ideal type of bureaucrat, they are by definition already nameless. Their identity does not matter because right. their authority is not based on their person. It is not based upon their experiences. It's not a you know charismatic or anything else. It's because they play a role in their organization, which might be the teller at the DMV. Yeah. And it doesn't matter which teller at the DMV you get, you're supposed to be getting the same experience. 
and that the authority that the teller has isn't based upon his or her experiences or anything he or she has done. Mm -hmm. It is based on being the teller at the DMV, which is very boring. But it is also later in the 20th century linked to things like the Holocaust, where um, in uh, oh, what's the name of the book, um, Eichmann in Jerusalem, uh, Hannah Arden. Uh, argues that this sort of depersonalized authority and bureaucratic thinking created what she called the um, banality of evil. That it transformed what should have been deeply personal and more easily resisted, uh, you know, evil acts like genocide into bureaucratic exercises. Mm -hmm. And it because it depersonalized the work, mm -hmm. it allowed people to sort of morally tolerate um, extinguishing several people, uh, people's groups of people, genocide, um, because it was just, that's just bureaucratic work. And it's not and really if, because if of them. you're not doing it, somebody else in that position is going to, so it doesn't matter. It's not you. It's the position. Right. And part of that is this depersonalization that not only do we then not think of the teller at the DMV as being a person because their authority doesn't stem from their person, that teller also doesn't think of what they do as being of themselves and therefore is not morally responsible for it. And so it's, it's complex. There are certainly uh, bureaucracy is not seen as an unmitigated good sure. <laughs> to be sure. Um, and it is implicated in the best and the worst parts of the 20th century. But the the, fir the first of these aspects is this depersonalized authority. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we'll get, to, we'll get to how to see, we'll turn, we'll make that surreal in a minute. Um, the second component is that their decisions are supposed to be based upon appeals to technical competence rather than to tradition or to some, you know, mystical quality of an individual person. So it's not because Chase said we have to do it, that we have to do it. It's not that we've always done it this way, that we have to do it this way. It's that this is the best way based upon data. Mm -hmm. Based upon um, some sort of technical analysis of what we're supposed to do. Uh, that though, as we'll get to that, this also has proven to be susceptible to all sorts of biases. And, you know, some have argued that the Holocaust is also part, you know, implicated um, in the uh, appeals to technical competence because it rendered the exercise of mass extermination into a technical exercise that was completed in a very efficient way and justified as an efficient means to accomplish some sort of in state of racial purity. And so technical competence is not itself innocent either, but it is part of what Weber is talking about that the DMV does not justify its existence based upon there always being a DMV. The DMV justifies existence because someone's got to do this work. And so they're going to train people, they allege, to do this work as efficiently as possible, though we all know how that worked out. Yeah. <laughs> um, and finally, this the application of this of these decisions should be based upon a set of rules rather than individualized decisions for for individual cases. So if you are allowed to get your driver's license, the DMV, it shouldn't be because of a consideration of your case and who you are. It should be based upon whether you've met certain qualifying conditions. If you follow the rules, the decision should naturally follow. Again, this sounds really good uh, because it means that the decision should be predictable and the rules, if they aren't based upon personal identity, shouldn't be discriminatory. Uh, 
But again, it hasn't usually worked out that way. We're, we're becoming all the more aware of how seemingly neutral rules can lead to dramatically disparate outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so, again, bureaucracy sounded really good in the early 20th century, um, but we've discovered over this last hundred years uh, the limitations and exaggerations inherent in this depiction, which make it uh, a goldmine for making surreal. Because we've got these three characteristics that we can amp up and distort uh, in order to illustrate the fundamental contradictions and uh, limitations of the underlying concept to begin with. And that's really what the surrealists were all about. They're about taking things we that, for, that, that we often take for granted and showing how they have their own built-in contradictions and their built-in um, blind spots that lead to terrible outcomes. So uh, this is in some ways the most surreal application, uh, I should say, maybe the most consistent with the spirit of the surrealist movement of all of these exercises we've done in, on the podcast. Because what we'll do is we'll take those three characteristics and exaggerate them and show how uh, they aren't what they seem to be, how limited they are, and then how pernicious the outcomes can be. Cool. So um, we can talk about representing the surreal bureaucracy in the Invisible Sun RPG. A, a quick reminder, there's, there's a lot of locations or organizations in Invisible Sun that uh, – could use this sort of treatment. They are treated as bureaucratic to varying degrees, but all to a degree where this sort of exercise would be, would fit in nicely with stories told about the pale, which inspired this particular discussion, but also um, the Vance college is, you know, you could use elements of bureaucracy there, uh, the goetic library, uh, the guild of the makers, all of these are places where you could take pieces of surreal bureaucracy and express them through these locations in a way that really fits in with the setting. So the first of those key characteristics, depersonalization. Uh, thought of a few ways to make this <clears throat> surreal, uh, as is the, the simplest case, as is often the case with making something surreal. We take the essence and we make it literal. So if depersonalization is made literal, it means that your bureaucrats should literally be faceless. Just entities that have no faces, that are interchangeable, um, and you, you can't distinguish one from the other. So when you go to the Saturine DMV or its equivalent, you have a, an array of cubbies where you go to meet with your agent, and it, but all the agents look the same. Maybe they all wear robes. Maybe with with some sort of of a changery uh, effect that blanks out their faces, um, you could have them all pixelated if you want to have kind of a modern feel to it. Uh, but something that renders all of the agents of that organization completely faceless, because their their authority should not come from their face. It would be a real bummer if they had to go to the changery to get that process done, because that's. That's a lot more permanent than just putting a mask on. Uh, and that would not be out of line with kind of what we think about bureaucracy, that bureaucracy mm -hmm. transforms you. That the person who's working, I, I'm making fun of the DMV, which is I don't usually do because I like I, said, I teach this stuff and I teach people who work at DMVs. So I know them as people, um, but they're just a, a common resonant image in our culture. Yeah. But there is a, a sense that working in these organizations 
affects you. And so it might even be that if you start at, the, at this Saturine DMV, nothing happens, but uh, but only slowly over time, your face begins to erase. That you might even be able to tell how long someone's been at the uh, at this organ at the Saturnine DMV based on how little of their face remains. Yeah, that's kind of horrifying. <laughs> Success. Um, you could also reverse this because part of the the uh, notion of authority being in the position, not the person, is that to qualify for certain services, let's say, from the government. It shouldn't be about who you are. It's about what position you're in and what situation you you have been um, subject to. Mm -hmm. So they may force anonymity on the people who are appealing to the Saturnine DMV or whatever organization you're using and say, you can't make your case in a, in a way where you are identifiable. And since this is a surreal world, we can both make this ridiculously extreme and both hor horrifying and funny at the same time and engage modern, like our debates in our world in the gray uh, in this process. Maybe they require people attend only as their own skeletal forms. But what if it's about something like a property line dispute between two parties? Uh -huh. Isn't the nature of that problem going to identify the people who are involved? The paperwork might, but it, this might be a legacy of, uh, you know, generations of this organization's zeal for anonymity. And so even in cases where the facts of the dispute would identify you, they still require you be anonymous as you make the appeal. Hmm. It also, in, in our world, uh, the, the answer would be that uh, that's actually not a bureaucratic appeal. That is a quasi-judicial appeal. And judicial appeals do tend to, they aren't anonymous. But it's if you're applying to a very general process of qualification or non-qualification, like for um, qualifying for work training programs, student loans, or things like that, that you'd be forced to be anonymous. I, I'm sorry. I can't believe I made such a silly assumption. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, this is my day job. So I kind of going to go off on this sometimes. Um, but it makes it fun to play with this. So uh, I'm not sure this fun is the right word here, but as an example of how this could engage a real world controversy, imagine your players have to appeal to um, some, you know, a license for something. And they find out to do this, they have to be anonymous, which means they have to be in this skeletal form, which is, is sort of funny and weird and ha ha ha. Mm hmm. But then you might like, what if one of your players has gone to a changery and an important part of their character is that they have chosen a new form that isn't reflected in their, you know, bipedal, uh, you know, expected skeletal form. Maybe they don't have two legs anymore, literally. Um, but the rules say you have to have a bipedal skeletal form. This starts to engage questions of, I think the term is dead naming. Uh, where... Um, it's, uh, trans individuals and I hope I don't explain this wrong, but I think it'll be, it'll come. It's oh, wait, a, no, a good hearted attempt. Yeah. Where a, a, a trans person has adopted a new, um, obviously a, a new identity and a new name, forcing them to respond to their birth name, um, that represents an old gender or an old identity is dead naming. That is, it's forcing someone to use a name that they have they have left behind for their new identity. And, and in some ways, it questions their new identity. It questions the authenticity of their new identity. 
And without engaging that directly, it's a really interesting problem. And, and if you're trying to explore these sorts of traumas, um, though they're traumas, you want to make sure your table's good with this. If you want to explore, like, like some would say, well, why is that a big deal? If you're a trans person, this is a big deal. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to try to explore why it's a big deal and, ex you know, and use role playing to explore this problem, I think this is a place you can use, you know, the surreal bureaucracy to do that because you're taking it away out of the literal context. But now you're making people confront, well, what trauma is involved with telling someone, I know you've chosen a new body, but we can't, you can't apply for government services um, with your new body. You're going to have to go back to your old body, even if temporarily to apply for these services. And so it, it lets you engage this very real problem today in a surreal way. And I think that's, a, you know, a lot of groups would, would like to do that. And here's a way to do that. Uh, but it is also trauma. So again, make sure you're, you're communicating with your table that they're okay discussing these subjects and that this isn't too personal um, and too traumatic for them as players, um, as opposed to exploring trauma of the characters. Uh, that's kind of a heavy uh, <laughs> version of this. Yeah. Um, if you want a more <laughs> playful version of this, then you could even have just play off the, the, the tones of bureaucracy and say that you have to be in robes so that no one could tell who you are. And you might use voice modifiers so no one can even tell what your voice is. And then if they say anything identifying, oh, that invalidates the process and you have to start all over again. That goes more into a lampooning of bureaucracy, and that may be more appropriate for the tone of some people's tables. So I want to give different options for different tones. Yeah, I do think it's valuable that they're the thing that RPGs do for us is that we can dig into some of these issues so that if you don't have you know, the experience or the background, you might be able to get some sort of context as to why, you know, why it is so different for, you know, other people. Right. And, and it's, I, I think it's for all sorts of reasons, unlikely that the people who don't understand why dead naming would be harmful are the people playing this game yeah. who you could kind of put in, who would be willing to explore being put into this position. Cause I also would, I wouldn't want to trick someone into this. Right. Um, but it is just a way to explore this trauma. And some people who are experiencing this trauma in, as individuals may want to explore it in a, in a sideways context. Mm -hmm. um, so there, there's, this is kind of the social, social. Um, uh, you know, this is a way for, for us to explore social issues in this game um, in, a, in a somewhat safer way, but still with enough connection that uh, we can explore serious subjects. And I, I think Invisible Sun excels at this because surrealism allows us to do exactly this. So we use a surreal bureaucracy to explore questions of identity yeah. and what it means to ha have controversial identity, um, even if the controversy itself is the problem, um, confront an organization that seems unaware or insensitive to these controversies or to these new, you know, to, to these approaches of naming and things like that. So it lets us tackle important subjects in our at our tables and experience these things and then close the book and move away if we can avoid too much of a bleed into our real lives. Mm -hmm. But if that's, if that's not for your table, that's also okay. You don't have to do this, but it's an option. Um, the second component of bureaucracy is the requirement of technical competence, that the appeal is not to... Uh, you know, a person's identity or anything else. It's just, this is, we have evidence to suggest this will work. We do this efficiently, that sort of thing. 
Uh, here, it, it's a little easier to make this surreal, um, or maybe I just didn't think of anything quite as dramatic as this exploration of dead naming. With technical competence, you could say, well, if you need to make a specific claim in front of a Saturine court or in front of a Saturine agency um, or the Thaw or whomever, you have, are required to provide specific types of evidence. And they have rules as to what counts as evidence and what does not count as evidence. Mm -hmm. And so you may have um, a session where you have to go get the right type of evidence for a particular type of claim. And it might even be an exotic or weird type of evidence because, uh, again, that's kind of the experience a lot of people have. Like, why do I need that information to apply for a driver's license or whatever it may be? Um, or, you know, why is not, why, why does this receipt not count for my office, but this receipt does count for my office? You can replicate that kind of experience by saying, no, 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 you, you can't use that type of magic or that type of divination. You have to use this other type of certified divination <laughs> and <coughs> play out the, this sort of arbit seemingly arbitrary uh, definition of technical competence with, uh, in Saturine. Uh, you may even have to require a specific expert to sign off. Like again, if you've done divination and you found, oh, well, we need to investigate this person. Oh, you can't do that yet. You're not certified as a diviner uh, for thaw purposes. You need, um, you know, Augustus, who is uh, the certified uh, diviner for uh, cases involving um, smuggling. Like, oh, okay, now you got to go find Augustus and you've got to get Augustus to sign off on this evidence or things like that. Um, so just, just seemingly arbitrary rules um, express a, sur a surreal version of bureaucracy. In these locations, I would suggest letting the uh, more of expressionism than surrealism allow the setting to itself embody the, um, the bureaucracy itself. So, and, and some of our inspirations at the end will give you visual examples of this. These locations should just be dripping with Rube Goldberg machines where like communication is done through pneumatic tubes um, or transportation might even be through pneumatic tubes. I don't know why pneumatic tubes seem to be so associated with bureaucracies. Um, I bet you Brazil has a little bit to do with it. It has a, has a lot to do with it. And we'll get back to that as one of our inspirations. Um, but also clockwork machines. And this fits right in to the tone of the art and setting of Invisible Sun. I mean, pneumatic tube really, you know, turns a whole bunch of that process into a faceless machine. Like you, you do your paperwork, you put it in this little container and drop it into tube, and then it goes off to where it's supposed to go. You don't need to worry about it. Yeah, I think our, our listeners aren't necessarily the youngest of listeners. Everybody knows what a pneumatic tube is. Yeah, but I'm just thinking the example I was going to use is the pneumatic tubes that were common in banks. Yeah. And drive throughs I mean, they're, they're still there. They're still, they're becoming more rare, but they still exist. And that is a way for you to interact with a bank teller. Again, bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. It's not all government. It's just organizations. A bank teller that you don't have to actually see. Yep. You might hear their scratchy voice through the microphone um, and the speaker, but uh, you don't actually see them. And the new MagTube kind of empowers that depersonalization. So suggestion three, pneumatic tubes. Lots of them. <laughs> Wherever, anywhere you can have them. I kind of want one for my office, but anyway. Uh, the third and final of the essential characteristics of bureaucracy that we're discussing is, is, is work by rules. So again, it's not the person who qualifies. It's it's whether your whether you meet certain conditions. Decisions should be governed by rules, and all of these suggestions stem from one core suggestion, which this means paperwork. 
Oh, oh so much paperwork. TPS reports. Um, right, which need to be signed by all five uh, bosses. Uh, and two of them are dead. <laughs> yes, which means going to the pale. Yep. <laughs> Uh, it wouldn't be, I didn't put this in inspiration, so I'll, I can put it here. Uh, we, you know, office space is a surreal bureaucracy. <laughs> so yep. you can draw from the movie office space, obviously very indirectly, but I, 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 I don't think we could do a whole section session on, uh, or segment on, uh, surreal paperwork, but maybe, but we'll just stick to this for now. Making paperwork surreal is pretty easy because so much, so much of it already is sur- surreal. Uh, you can have paperwork that says, oh, well, you know, everything has to be about forms. So fill out this form. Oh, but this form contradicts that form. Oh, uh, I guess that one isn't updated yet. Still fill it out. Like, how do I fill it out if this form contradicts that form? Just fill it out. Uh, forms where if you try to read the legalese, it is complete gibberish or you can't focus in on it. <laughs> in, in a surreal magical world, uh, the legalese might literally be sort of a, a, a hypnotic component of the of the document mm-hmm. that it'll actually put you to sleep <laughs> and it's intended to do so or it can be only be read by certified professionals which means those who can have the special read magic abilities mm-hmm. to read those exact kind of documents you could even have uh the paperwork could reveal rules that are that seem to be rules but are clearly interpreted in arbitrary ways like if you, you know, you, well, clearly you qualify if you fill out this form, but this form just asks me whether, um, I am uh, cheery, but you know, who, who knows what cheery means? It, it means different things, different people. No, just, just write down. Are you cheery or not? Well, I mean, who's, who's judging just write down whether you're cheery or not. Like the, the, the refusal to recognize the subjectivity in rules is part of the surreal nature of paperwork. This is hard to make surreal only because in part it is already surreal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Working with long documents and filling out lots of paperwork is itself already a surreal experience, but you just want to dial that up to 11 for yeah. surreal rules in Saturnine. Uh As a homeowner, I can 100% understand the surrealism of filling out paperwork. Yes, buying a home um, and fil- signing all the paper. One of the surreal components of that, which could be made part of a surreal um, encounter or uh, as a session, well, not a whole session, part of a session, would just be, well, here's our here's our form. Fill out these forms. Like, there's 200 pages here. Well, yeah, you don't have to read them. I just said fill them out. <laughs> so just cast the spell that'll sign it all all 200 pages. Why am I signing it if I'm not supposed to read it? Uh, oh, you don't have time like, to read it. You're going to get caught in a parasite world or something. <laughs> exactly. So it's like, no, you have to have you have to say you've read it, but you, you can't actually read it. <laughs> you wouldn't want to read it. And, and so you can play with that element of surrealism in terms of the kind of our culture around paperwork. Uh, another example is is uh, licensing agreements with like software. Ugh. Um, or, you know, you know the, here's 20 pages of material and you just scan through and click. Yes, I read at the end. That's all right. That, that's pre surrealized for you. That's the surreal part of our existing world. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you have to fill this out so that, you know, it at the end of this, when you when you agree to this, you don't own what it is you're buying. But you can't use it unless you sign this. Right. 
you are owning the right to potentially own in the future and really have only the in the meantime you just have a specified debt yeah you you own the right to borrow this <laughs> yes <laughs> that that sounds like surreal paperwork yeah so and there's a lot of places you could look for inspiration we've talked about the real world and office space and things like that but there's more fantastical examples uh, in in fiction, I recommend Kafka's novella, The The Trial, where it's a surreal trial, and you get a sense of of being caught in a system that is arbitrary and yet filled with arcane rules, which in the early 20th century was a contradiction. Less so now, because we all live in Kafka's trial right now. Uh, in in film, you have, as mentioned before, the movie Brazil. And we've mentioned this before. We will likely mention it again. It is a fantastic uh, expression of surrealism generally, but specifically um, a surreal bureaucratized culture mm -hmm. with lots of pneumatic tubes. And uh, it, it itself, it, it, it would have been, I'm not sure it's impossible to write Invisible Sun without having been inspired in part by Brazil, but pretty close to that because the movie is to some extent about escaping a bureaucracy through imagination and uh but it's the, the parts that are about the bureaucracy would be easy to draw from oh yeah for uh for satirine uh, and but maybe for the pale as well and i've got a plug uh one of my favorite examples of bureaucracy is hermes conrad on futurama oh he's great <laughs> yes he is uh he's a certified bureaucrat and they even have bureaucratic rules for how you certify bureaucrats of being of certain levels and so his what he injects into most of the episodes is surreal bureaucracy. Uh, and uh, as a means of minor self-promotion, I actually wrote a book chapter in a book called Poly Sci-Fi about how you could teach the notion of bureaucracy uh, by uh, showing episodes of Futurama that focus on Hermes Conrad. Like uh, how Hermes requisitioned his groove back. <laughs> And uh, how the, the it, there's actually a somewhat sophisticated treatment of these elements of bureaucracy in these episodes of Futurama focusing on Hermes Conrad because he so clearly represents surreal bureaucracy. Cool. Any other inspirations or reactions to this uh, already somewhat long discussion of uh, surreal bureaucracy? Uh, well, once my players have to deal with whatever's in the pail... Uh, I imagine I'm going to be pulling some of this stuff in and putting it to good use. And if you have a Robert De Niro accent, then your uh, anarchist plumber is just right there. Yeah, there you go. I don't have a Robert De Niro accent, so you're, you're teeing me up for nothing. Oh, well, or you could work on it. Yeah, I'll work on it. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Agonseer, that's at A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R, on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore Red on Twitter. 
So please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes uh, or whichever uh, podcast app you are using. Uh, it really helps us out. Uh, we also like seeing ratings and reviews, whether they're good or bad. Uh, or else just tell a friend about the show. That's another great way to get the word out and ha help people find us.